Thank you for checking out the Life Church Utah podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. If you'd like to give to Life Church, you can do so by texting the word LC Give to 43506. And now, a message from one of our pastors. Well, our series uh, we are wrapping up this week uh, has been, uh, to me, super challenging. We've talked through uh, Tough Talks, uh, week number one. And by the way, all these are available online. Uh, you can find them on, uh, on Facebook or if you're, uh, if you're familiar with Vimeo, those, they're also available on Vimeo. But you can make your way there. Uh, week one, we talked about uh, human trafficking, had a guest from Operation Underground Railroad. And uh, thank you very much, by the way, for those who participated in uh, providing those, uh, those hygiene packs uh, for the women that are in desperate need that have been rescued, um, that we are helping to provide care for. So thank you for that. A really great, challenging uh, service for us. Last week, we talked about mental health. And uh, I know that uh, after the conversations I had last Sunday and then many during the week, I know that God is at work in so many of us, right, just helping to bring a wholeness and health to us and getting the help that we need so that we can flourish in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And so if you didn't see that one and you weren't here, make sure you, you take a look at that online as well. It was really powerful. And uh, this week, and before I introduce our guest speaker uh, for this week, uh, I want to let you know a couple things that are coming up in our services Next Sunday is Labor Day weekend. Now, I know this is Utah, and I have found out that there's like an outdoor world that people like to go to that happens to be over weekends, and I understand that's beautiful, it's wonderful, get out there in God's creation. But next week, if you do, I'm here to tell you, you're going to miss an incredible service. Here's what it is. We're, we've got a celebration of worship you're not going to want to miss. And the reason for that is, how many of you were Christians in the 60s? All right, a few of you, a handful of you, very, very good. I mean, I wasn't born until the 70s, just so you know, all right. Uh, but uh, we are going to have some music all the way back from the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all the way up into current, current time. Uh, it's going to be a blast, but not only a blast, we're going to have a lot of fun, hopefully with it, uh, but uh, it's going to be all about worship and why is worship important for us. And I love the fact we have a great band, right? But it's, it's going to be this moment for us to experience worship through the decades and the ways that God has kind of grown his church and grown us to respond to him uh, over the years. And then following that one, in uh, so early, uh, early September, we're going to be launching life groups. I know uh, many of you have been a part of Life Church for a long time. You're familiar with life groups. We're relaunching them in a different model, and we'll be talking about that. But there'll be a couple of weeks there at the beginning of, uh, of September. We're going to be uh, talking about life together. And uh, we, we know that we are better together than we are in isolation, and, and we find healing and hope through relationships. And so we're going to find out about that and how we can be a blessing to one another. The Bible is filled uh, with these, these statements, these one another statements, and we're going to walk through those uh, together as a family and uh, how then life groups tie into that. And then some incredible more series that we've got planned for the rest of the year. So in other words, don't miss a Sunday. Don't miss a Sunday. You never know what's going to happen. So as we close out our, our Tough Talk series today, it was back in November when uh, we had just, uh, or I had just arrived here. My, my wife and kids were still living in Illinois, and we had arrived, or I had arrived here early October and had an opportunity to go to a minister's retreat up in, uh, up in Park City and spend a couple of days up there and heard this incredible presentation on human sexuality. 
And at that time, I was going, Lord, if there's a way that, that we could kind of incorporate this into Life Church and, and, and talk about this topic, because it's not talked about a lot in the church. And so I contacted the speaker who was up there. His name is Phil, and I contacted him. He's one of the pastors in our Rocky Mountain district out in, the, out in Colorado. I'll let him tell a little bit about his church here in just a moment. But I contacted him, and I said, hey, Phil, we're doing this Tough Talk series, and here's what we're talking about, and I would love for nobody else to come here and help us navigate this in, a, uh, in really a wise and practical way uh, than you. And so he said, sure, let's make this thing happen. So I invited him, and he graciously said yes, and I'm so excited to have Pastor Phil Steiger here with us this morning to help us as we discuss uh, really a tough talk, but one that the church has got to be involved in. And so would you please welcome this morning, Pastor Phil Steiger from Colorado Springs. Well, good morning. So glad to be with all of you guys today. My name is Phil Steiger. I pastor Living Hope Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My uh, my wife Heather is with us here this morning as well, and this really is a privilege for us to be here. For many years, we've had these kinds of personal connections with Life Church, as a matter of fact. Uh, so my family um, is long-term friends with the Ayers family and so forth. So off and on, I've had to put up with Pastor Jim, like many of you guys have had to as well. <laughs> Love the Ayers. Uh, I've known the Hecathorns for years and, and uh, got to know Rich and Shelley many years ago when they were in Greeley as youth pastors, and Rich was writing uh, Irish drinking songs for Christians. Now, I don't know, he might still be doing that, but anyway, it is an absolute privilege for, be, for us to be here this morning. And, and let me say again as well, thank you for not taking this for granted, this time of worship with each other. It is beautiful to be with other parts of the family of God and engage in the worship of the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys have a magnificent worship team, don't you? You really do. Now, back home, my wife Heather, she plays the piano on our team. I actually play the drums on our worship team. So I want to give uh, props to one individual who almost never gets props on a Sunday morning. You guys have a magnificent drummer, right? Yeah. Cage-free drumming, people. Cage-free drumming. All right. It's, it's a poultry joke. <laughs> All right. As we get started, I'm in the habit of praying before I preach, so let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is to be with one another in the presence of God, the chance that you've given us today to do this sort of thing. So God, we... We return all of this to you in thanksgiving and in adoration with our hearts and minds and eyes open to what you would say to your church today. Holy Spirit, continue to be manifestly present, working in the hearts and lives of your children this morning. And may we see Jesus more clearly today because of it. In your magnificent and wonderful name we pray, amen. Amen. So our topic this morning is human sexuality. I've realized um, over time that when that topic is announced, some people think, oh, he's here to give us the talk. I'm, I'm not here to give you the talk. We're here to talk about what's going on in culture around us and what the biblical point of view is on human sexuality and how God has created us. So what I want to do is I want to root us in some scripture to begin with, then talk a little bit about the issue as we face it in the culture around us today 
and then just really dive into uh, the, the biblical model and the biblical point of view on human sexuality and how God has created us to be. So I want to begin by reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, go like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So friends, every human being has been made in the image of God. Absolutely every human being. And right here at the very beginning of the creation of humans, we get this language, this powerful language that God created us in his image and in his likeness. Male and female, he created us. Now this is a gigantic topic. and It's a huge conversation. What does it mean for you and me to still bear some of the image of God and his character and personality and, and life and what he's given to us? But for our purposes this morning, we want to focus in on even just some of the vocabulary that shows up here in these first few verses that we read. So part of the story of what it means for us to be made in the image of God, it's fairly straightforward. It says here that we were made male and female both of us equally created in the image and the likeness of God. We were created to be in relationship with each other as male and female. We were created to fill the earth with other human beings and then to take care of the earth side by side with one another. So he says, go and fill the earth, right? And, and steward it and take care of it. And this is part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. So when we speak of the image of God and what he's given to us, part of what this does is it gives us a standard, a standard that we live up to. It's a certain kind of design that God has given us. And I use that language on purpose, that God has designed us, male and female, to work in certain kinds of ways. And it's not just physical and biological, but the engineering that God has put inside of us, it's emotional and relational and spiritual and chemical and physiological and everything. And so God has actually created us, designed us to flourish as we live in a certain context as male and female in the image of God. So the image that God has given us is a gift, and then it's this standard that we live up to. So this gift that he has given us in his image, and then all of us are fallen creatures, broken creatures, sinful creatures. And so that image is marred. It's, 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 it's fuzzy inside of us in different ways. And so now we have this standard that we live up to because we are all of us fallen people. So in the context of what we're talking about this morning, when we speak about human sexuality, I think it's important to understand this. Any sexual ethic that's promoted by a culture or however you want to view it, any sexual ethic that moves away from the standard and design that God has given us is actually a moral regression. No matter how many words, uh, how much vocabulary like progressive you can put on a different sexual morality, if it moves away from the standard God has given us in His image, it is a regression. 
in any sexual ethic that moves closer and closer to God's design, to the image of God, or the way in which he has built us, is moral progression inside of our lives. So here's this point, kind of right at the very beginning, that I think is good for us to hear and understand as followers of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Guys, churches and Christians are part of the public conversation in our culture. Now, there are people in our culture who wish that was not the case, but it is the case. Christians and churches are as much a part of the public conversation as anybody else. And it is both rational and compassionate for us to hold to the biblical view of marriage, family, and human sexuality. And I use this language on purpose. It is both rational and compassionate. It is the thing that makes the most sense. When we take stock of what's going on inside the human person, the culture around us, what is true and what is false, it is rational for us to defend God's view of human sexuality. And we'll unfold this a little bit later on as well, but it is compassionate to do so as well. It is an act of compassion. It is an act of love toward the world around us. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the issue as we face it what we sort of feel going on in our culture. Many of you I know have stories about where you work or where you go to school or where your kids go to school. You have stories, and so we confront this. We don't just sort of know it's out there. We actually confront this on a regular basis. Guys, I believe we're at a point where our cultural gatekeepers want to make unlimited sexual expression the moral norm. Now, that's not the case for absolutely everybody you know and you live with and work with, but our cultural gatekeepers are walking down this path where they want to make unlimited sexual expression the moral norm. Now, here's part of how this works. One of the primary moral values in our culture today is a kind of freedom of self-expression. The freer I am to express what I feel like I'm supposed to express, the happier I am going to be. Now, that turns out to not really work out all that well, but the freer I am, the happier I am going to be. So if that is one of the highest moral standards that our culture holds, then one of the greatest sins that you can commit is say, well, no. Acting on those feelings may not be the best thing for you. So this is why this notion of tolerance works the way that it does in our culture right now. If we value this, then that is actually one of the greatest sins in our culture. And I think we know this as well, that oftentimes as we, as we walk down this path of unlimited sexual expression, that oftentimes there's punishment that comes with any form of dissent to that point of view. I think it's also important for us to understand that there's no logical backstop to what used to be called, and still is in many ways, is called the sexual revolution. There's no logical backstop. If you believe that there is some sort of a moral taboo beyond which our culture will not go, we keep on discovering, well, we're going to hit that taboo, and then it's going to become normal. Then you think, well, we've got another sort of boundary over here. Well, there's no way we're going to go there. Well, we're on our way there. It's a, it's a culturally and morally relativistic point of view of human sexuality. So it's bound to change over time. It's just what it does. So in the end, no taboo is safe if this point of view has its way. And we feel this, we see this, we know this, we're engaged with this. We watch in our movie, our TV, our news, and so on and so forth. 
I've got a slide here with a handful of examples, and I just want to kind of help us understand and see some of what's going on around us. So the I Am Jazz show is a reality TV show that follows a boy who's living as a girl. This article in the middle was posted on the Huffington Post a little over a year ago. Thruple relationships versus threesome explained. So one of the things that's happened with this movement in our culture is that all these unfortunate pieces of vocabulary being introduced into our society. So couple, two, thruple, three. Everybody say thruple. It's, it's a fun word to say, isn't it? <laughs> Normalizing this version of sexual expression. There on the left, we have a, a, a glimpse of what's called the gender unicorn, and it is published by the Trans Student Education Resource Unit. And what this is intended to be is educational resources for elementary schools to help kids realize where they are on the gamut of sexual expression. So it's intended to lay this before children and say, now you could be anywhere inside of these slides who you're attracted to biologically, emotionally, who you feel like you are, so on and so forth. Not that long ago, in fact, I believe it was just about a week and a half, two weeks ago, this piece of, thing, this, this, this piece of uh, education actually hit the news in USA Today because there was a teacher and a principal who had actually gone to war about whether or not to use that inside of their elementary classroom. Right? So we see these things, you think, well, that's kind of a little bit crazy, but it's actually being used on a regular basis. It's so we know that it's inside of our school curriculums in many ways, this, this uh, sexual revolution, this point of view. A young lady in my church went to Colorado State University as a freshman just this year. And during freshman orientation, her father started texting me pictures of the stuff that was inside of her packet. And so our next slide is one of the pictures that he sent me. And it's the pronoun guide that's given to freshman students as they enter into college. These are the officially acceptable pronouns that you can use and how to use them. She, her, hers, him, him, his, and then the they, them, there for individuals. And then the one that sort of covers everything else typically is the Z, Zer, and Zers. Now, I brought this to my staff, and we're looking at it. We're going, oh, man, I can't believe this. This is crazy. It doesn't even make sense. And then one of my staff members says, you know what's most bothersome about this piece of paper to me is that CSU assumes that freshmen don't know what pronouns are. So you read right at the very top, well, what is a pronoun? So there's just everything is wrong with a sheet of paper like this in a lot of ways. But there's some more recent developments as well. There's there's a lot that we could talk about, but I want to make sure that we're at least aware of some of the things that are going on around us. The APA is the American Psychological Associ Association. It is the primary accrediting association for psychology degrees in the United States of America. They have recently formulated what they call the Consensual Non-Monogamy Task Force. And their job is to create educational resources to normalize consensual relationships outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, part of their recommendation for elementary curriculum is that teachers and schools can no longer use the terms boyfriend and girlfriend because the assumption should be that elementary kids may have more than one partner at a time. So that's their recommendation, right? Many of you are aware of H.R. 5, the Equality Act, and it's just known that if that passes and becomes law, it would create precedent for federal courts to require curriculum celebrating the LGBTQ agenda. So that's passed the House, hasn't passed the Senate. I come from the state of Colorado where the land is beautiful and the politics are getting weirder all the time. 
And in the state of Colorado, they have passed their version of this bill. And so now it's become law that our public schools um, teach this kind of curriculum. It's not just public schools now, but it's charter schools that are attached to public schools. Just a few days ago, I got to have a conversation with a school board member in the state of Colorado. And he said, he's a Christian guy, and he said, Phil, we now spend almost all of our time trying to wrestle with this legislation that the state of Colorado gave us. So this is now what school boards are having to deal with, um, oftentimes with most everything that they do. Now, I mentioned to you that no taboo is safe, and it's just the case that no taboo is safe. More and more, if you scratch the surface and you take a look at what's going on, pedophilia is being normalized in several different circles inside of our culture as well. Oftentimes, the phrase is just, love is love. There was an article that came uh, that was published by the BBC earlier this year surveying uh, academic literature on pedophilia, and they came to the conclusion that there is, quote, no academic consensus that it harms children. There's a movement to change the status of pedophilia in the Bible of counseling, what's called the DSM, to an orientation that belongs to minority-attracted adults. So you see how just the vocabulary and language, if that changes, maybe we can change even the moral structure of things as well. And we could go on and on and on, but we need to make sure that we see these things and understand that they may even go deeper than we know or than we feel. But primarily, I want to make sure that we stay focused on what Scripture has to say about how God created us what God's intention is for human sexuality and family and marriage and all of these kinds of things. All right, so C.S. Lewis, I'm going to talk about the biblical position then. C.S. Lewis puts it as well as, as, as he does just about everything. He says, the Christian position is this, either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And this is the design as God has put us together for the expression of our human sexuality is inside of marriage. And, and the biblical design for human marriage is monogamous and heterosexual and lifelong. This is how God has designed us and put us together. And it is in that context in which we flourish in the way in which God designed us to work. So either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence for everybody. Now, I grew up in an era in the church when the youth pastor gave a sermon about sexuality. It was basically the same sermon every single time. Don't do it, right? And that's right as far as it goes. But the rest of the biblical story goes further than that. The rest of the biblical story says something like this. This is a beautiful and a powerful gift that God has given us. Our sexuality reaches into every part of our being and existence. It is this incredible thing that God has given us. And so as it is beautiful, it is a powerful gift that God has given us. So human sexuality, and, and I've, I've joked with Rich about this before, and I'm going to step back here for just a second, but I've given this talk a couple of times in a couple of different contexts, and suddenly I'm the sex guy. I don't know how that happens. This is what I get to talk about now. But that's okay, because we need to see how God has designed us and understand what God intends for our flourishing and for our good. It's a beautiful gift that God has given us, and it is a powerful gift that God has given us. 
It is not just a biological, physical act. It is an emotional act. It is spiritual. It ends up being a financial commitment. It is everything about us. And I mean that in a good way. All right, you may laugh at it. I mean that in a good way. <laughs> Guys, there are chemicals that are released in our brain every time we have sex that emotionally connects us to that individual for the rest of our lives. You see, God has designed us to put us together this way in a beautiful and powerful way. And when God has given us a powerful tool in our lives, when that tool is misused, it can be powerfully destructive. If you give a little child a plastic hammer, they can play with a little toy with plastic blocks and so forth, but they can't do a lot of damage with that little plastic hammer. You give someone a sledgehammer, and they might be able to accomplish an incredible job, but they can also do a tremendous amount of damage. And when we're given a powerful tool in our lives and it's misused, it can turn into something that is powerfully destructive as well. When we begin to read through Scripture and we look for how does the New Testament, how does Scripture begin to talk about human sexuality, it is very easy to run across passages of Scripture that come across as, for lack of a better term, they come across as negative. This is not how we should behave. The sexually immoral won't inherit the kingdom of God. And we get language that feels like that. But there's a reason for how that language comes across to us. You see, the Greco-Roman society was a very sexually open and liberated culture. If you were a man in the Greco-Roman world during the time of the New Testament church and you had any kind of social or economic standing or power in life, every individual was open to you sexually except married women who were older, or excuse me, in a higher status than you were. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, legally and culturally, could be yours sexually. Now, what happens on the other side of that equation is that then means that marriage and family is not a safe place for women and for children. And what that ends up doing, when you hypersexualize men, you hypersexualize women and children as well. So as the New Testament church gets birthed and Jesus Christ begins to change lives, and these people are now moving from one kind of life into another kind of life, the New Testament's going to talk a lot about, it's going to assume this is the life we all know that we were living before we became followers of Jesus Christ. But now things are different. Things have changed inside of us. There's a brand new life given to us. And as image bearers who belong to Jesus Christ, this is now how we ought to live. So a lot of the New Testament sounds that way because it's talking to people who are coming out of one lifestyle and into another lifestyle, an expected life that was different for people. One of the examples that we have here, I gave you here on the screen, comes from the book of Titus, chapters 1 and 2. Titus is a young pastor who pastors on the island of Crete. And as Paul writes to Titus, he knows what the Cretan culture is like. In fact, at one point, he tells Titus, you know, one of their own poets said Cretans are liars, and he is absolutely right. <laughs> it, was, it was a Greco-Roman society, and it was a mess. And so for a very short book, almost all of chapter 1 and over half of chapter 2 is devoted to Paul telling Titus, here's how Christians need to behave. Isn't that interesting? Here's how elders behave, older women, younger women, older men, younger men. Here's how they need to behave. And I've given us just a snippet of some of the vocabulary in those two chapters so that we can get a feel for it. 
In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells this young pastor that elders need to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, not open to the charge of debauchery. Because they used to be, they used to not hold to just one wife, but now we're followers of Jesus Christ, and now there's a new life that we can be living. So the elders of the church need to be living this brand new life. Chapter 1, verse 8, elders of the church need to be self-controlled. And this is the vocabulary that ties together the first two chapters of the book of Titus. Chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be dignified and self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 5, older women need to be self-controlled and pure. Chapter 2, verse 6, younger men need to be self-controlled. And all of this has deliberate sexual overtones for the church in Crete. So guys, sexual morality was critical to the health of the church. Something that God instituted between man and woman to bear children and to build a family that's intended to be a safe and good place for all of those involved, it was not because of the sexual openness of the Greco-Roman culture. But now as followers of Jesus Christ, we are recreating healthy and good places for absolutely everybody. So sexual morality was good for the health of the church and the families and the individuals and the singles inside of the church of Jesus Christ. And it was absolutely critical to the witness of the church as well. We all know that this is what your lives used to be like. And the lives outside of the church are still like this. And we see a lot of the pain and destruction that comes from that. But now you bear witness to Jesus Christ through how you live with your family, through how you live with your spouse, through how you relate to other people who aren't your spouse. You now get to bear witness to Jesus Christ. So guys, I firmly believe that our culture is choosing the Roman way one more time. Our culture has decided, or at least our cultural gatekeepers have decided, that's the best way to express human sexuality. Well, the church outlived it once, and it's time for the church to outlive it again. Guys, the biblical model produces health and protection and strength for men and for women and for kids. The sexual ethic that we inherited in the West did not come from the Greco-Roman world. It came from the church of Jesus Christ. So guys, listen to this. The Christian view that was taught in the New Testament and lived out in the early church was radically different. And because of its moral advantages, it raised the lives of those who followed the standard. Eventually, the Christian view outlived the Roman Empire in its debauchery. And I believe in many ways we are in exactly the same position now. The same opportunity lies before us to choose the way of God in a loving and thoughtful and truthful way and to outlive the destruction that often goes on around us. A wonderful historian who, who tracks this, the history of the Christian church Rodney Stark is his name, and he makes his comment in a few different places, but women were converting to Christianity in droves in the 100s and 200s AD because the Christian ethic provided safety for them and for their kids. It did something different than the rest of the world was giving them. 
So what I want to do now is I want to, I want to give us a couple of thoughts about how love works. In fact, I'm going to give you a short argument about love. Now, one of the things Pastor Rich didn't mention, because you probably would have booed me off the stage if he did, I also, I moonlight as a philosophy professor. So I tell my church every now and then, you're just going to have to put up with philosophy, Phil, for just a minute. But we're talking about love and how love works. And I think this is going to make sense to us when we hear it. So think about this for a second. What I desire to do is not always the good thing to do. I think we understand that. Parents know that about kids. Teachers know that about kids. Youth sponsors know that about kids. We know that about ourselves. What I want to do is not always the good thing for me to do. Won't be good for me, won't be good for others, not morally good. To love someone is to desire their good. That is a wonderful, brief definition of what it means to love someone, to be attached to them in the right way, to sacrifice for them in the right ways, to pay attention to them in the right ways. To love someone means I desire their good. So the next step, I think, should sort of flesh itself out. This means that I may sometimes act against someone's desires, but in accordance with Christian love. I may say, yeah, I know I know that this is what is in you. I know this feeling is hard to get away from. I know that. But love says there's another way. So guys, it's important for us at a point like this to hear this. Disagreement is not the same thing as hate. Our culture has created a situation, especially when it comes to this topic, that in order to disagree with someone about their sexuality, it is taken as nothing but hatred. What I am telling you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, to disagree with someone, even about something that is this intense and personal and real, can oftentimes actually be an expression of love and not an expression of hate. And can I also say this to the church? Hate and fear of people who are different from us sexually has no place inside of the church of Jesus Christ. All of us have fallen short and all of us need grace and mercy. That can't be the sledgehammer that we wield as followers of Jesus Christ, right? So guys, the faithful Christian church will strive to find ways to love and to show compassion and truth. So if God's design for human sexuality is good, it is compassion to advocate for God's design for human sexuality. So we are salt and light in this world. We are those who live out witness to the kingdom of God. We are those who live in this world as image bearers, who, who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who want to see this world through the eyes of Jesus Christ and bear witness to the things that God has done for us and who he is and his truth. We are salt and light here is part of how Christ put that very thought. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There are a lot of denominations and churches who have decided to give up their saltiness when it comes to this topic. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, even in the context of our sexuality, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What I don't know if there could be a better thing said about a disciple of Jesus Christ than every time I saw them, I started to see Jesus Christ. I started to see their heavenly Father. So here are a few thoughts, a, a, a few practical thoughts about how to think about this, how to talk about this, how to begin working this through in our lives. First is this, giving up on God's truth is not love. Giving up on God's truth is not love. Many may want us, the church, to change its teachings, but giving up on truth is not love. Declaring truth without God's love is alienating. If all we wield is that sledgehammer, then we're just going to alienate people. Then this, guys, get to know your Christian faith and double down on the health of your church. Get to know what it is that Scripture has to say about these things. Understand them, absorb them, learn how to talk about them. And friends, the people in our community, in your community, need a healthy local body of believers. So double down on the health of this very church here. And then, guys, the faithful church is going to have to learn creative endurance and then shocking grace. How do I bear witness in a world that sometimes in my culture doesn't want me to bear witness to this? I may have to be creative in my endurance and holding to the truths of Jesus Christ and then shocking grace. Friends, as pain enters people's lives, we want to make sure that the doors of the church are open so that anyone for any reason can find grace to help in time of need. That this is a place of God's truth and of God's love. And that they may see our good works, and that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen? Amen. 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 Pastor Rich. Awesome. We pray that today's message is a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.